KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome in San Diego, it's Jade Hindman. The common thread in today's conversation is equity. From pollution in Imperial Beach to disparities in food access across the county, we're looking at recent reports on how to fix the issues. This is Midday Edition, connecting our communities through conversation. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Concerns surrounding contaminated water along the Tijuana River Valley and South Bay coastal waters aren't new. Putting all of the research, though, to support this issue into one concise document is. But San Diego State University researchers have done just that. In a new report released last week, they analyzed more than 60 studies to provide a pointed understanding of the problem. Simply put, water contamination along the Tijuana River and into the sea also affects the surrounding air and soil so much it's caused a public health crisis. Here to tell us more on this and their philosophy on how to fix it is Paula Stigler-Granados. She is one of the report's lead authors and is an associate professor at San Diego State University's School of Public Health. Professor Stigler-Granados, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you, happy to be here. So glad to have you here. So tell me about this report and how it differs from previous studies. This report is not new data, but it was asked to be done on behalf of Congressman Scott Peters who requested a report to be done looking at previous research on this topic and looking at what are the potential risks to public health coming from this cross-border contamination that's been going on for what seems like decades now. So this report compiled all the different data that's been coming out over the last 10 years or so, looking at contamination, what's in the contamination, what's in the air, what's in the soil, what's in the water, and just compiled it into a single report and talked about some of the risks associated with exposure to some of these contaminants. Yeah, and this is not new information. So what do you hope Congressman Peters will do with this report? Well, the report is hopefully to illuminate some of the potential risks associated with this problem and what risks of health problems it poses to our public and to take this information to the decision makers in DC in hopes that it will help to fund improvements to our infrastructure in order to help stop those flows. And you know, when we think about coastal pollution, a lot of times we think of surfers who may be in the ocean on a daily basis, but this study shows the public health impacts actually go far beyond just surfers. Absolutely. There are other people that are exposed to these contaminants. There's occupational health risks. We have lifeguards. We have Navy personnel. We have Border Patrol agents. We also have people that just live and work near this environment along the coast, along the beach, beachfront, you know, businesses, etc. 
all of these people are potentially at risk if they come into, uh, come into contact with this contaminated water, or as we were seeing in some of the reports of most recent data coming out, it's the potential for it to become aerosolized and people to be possibly breathing it in. Hmm. Can you explain a bit about how the water along the border coastal region gets contaminated from these cross-border sewage flows? Absolutely. And just to clarify, it's not just sewage that we look at. It's also urban runoff. So whenever we have these large rain events, like we're having today, mm -hmm. this runoff all over the city streets, across the border and on our side of the border, everything sort of runs into these canals and tributaries and the river that makes it out into the estuary and out into the ocean. So it's not just the sewage that the wastewater treatment plants capacity are unable to handle, but it's all the other stuff too that comes along with that. And that's toxic chemicals. It's also the sewage. Um, and it's just what we like to call sometimes urban drool. It's all that stuff that gets washed off and comes out into the same spot and just contributes to all of this cross-border contamination. And you mentioned the rainstorms. Um, we're seeing more of these atmospheric rivers. How does that play a role or contribute to the problem? Most of us know living in San Diego, we hear the news, don't get into the water three days after a rain event. That's very common because of all the runoff that happens, not just at the border, but along all of our you know, tributaries and creeks running into the ocean across the coastline. But when you have these large amounts of water coming in these large floods, basically, the wastewater treatment plants, they're not able to handle the capacity. They overflow. This is what comes out into the ocean. Therefore, really, the more rain events we have, the more contamination we have, the more water flow we have, the more risks we have. What are some of the most serious health impacts from contaminated water? Well, obviously, direct Water contact is the one thing that we worry about the most, as we've seen that there are some serious pathogens in the water. We've seen everything that you would expect to find in wastewater, including antibiotic-resistant genes and microbes, pathogens. But we're also seeing chemicals and contaminants that we might not necessarily normally look for. That's what some of this research is doing, is finding some of these exposure risks go beyond just E. coli or Enterococcus, which is what we normally look for. But we're looking at, you know, Legionella, Salmonella, Vibrio, all the different things that you might find in wastewater we're finding in these water samples. So that direct re recreational contact is something that we think is probably the highest risk. What we don't know is how much of those chemicals or pathogens are becoming aerosolized. There was a recent report that came out of UCSD scientists showing that there was aerosolization of these particles and that potential is there. What we don't know is how much risk there is and this is where we need to do further research. Hmm. And I don't know if this is in the wheelhouse either, but I'm curious, you know, as our temperatures warm up, as, as the ocean water gets warmer, does that impact how many um, pathogens are in the water? That's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> but we do know climate change, we are concerned about additional rainfall events. We had the Hurricane Hillary, you know, first hurricane we've had here in a long time. So the potential for these warmer conditions, climate change, um, El Nino that we're happening right now, there's always a potential for these increased rain events. And in addition to that, the warmer waters could absolutely create a better environment for some of these pathogens and bacteria to thrive.
Yeah. You know, the problem of contaminated water along the border is not a new problem, as, as we talked about earlier. What, what makes this research important in discussions on this problem? That this culminates into a report where we're pulling together all the different research from all the different research scientists that have done this work, and then also comparing it to research done in other parts of the world where they've done similar science on similar pathogens and similar transports of these chemicals and pathogens. And we're bringing it to a topic to elevate the awareness around the mass amount of contamination that has continued to happen on a daily basis and how big of a problem it really is. It doesn't seem to always get enough attention because it's been going on for so long. But again, as we're seeing more and more rain events, we're seeing more and more pollution coming out, it's reaching a really critical place right now where we need to make these trans-border uh, contamination flows stop. What public health recommendations do you have for those who live and work in these areas? I think it's really important to pay attention to the county reports that come out about beach closures and about contaminated waters to stay out of them after three days. Obviously, if you're immunocompromised or you have concerns about your health, you want to limit your exposures to just about anything that might make you sick. So take that into consideration. Um, obviously, consult with you know your doctor if you're not feeling well. And you know I wouldn't say I'd wouldn't not recommend going out and getting into our environment and being in this amazing outdoor environment that we live in here in San Diego, but limit exposures when possible if you're at higher risk for becoming ill. And you mentioned those who are immunocompromised. I mean, what populations are most vulnerable to this type of pollution? Sure. Just like in public health, we always talk about populations that might be at higher risk for becoming ill from exposures. And we, t we talk about children. We talk about older adults. We also talk about pregnant women or anybody that's immunocompromised. Those are always the general audience of people we talk about that might be at higher risk and to be cautious about what you're coming into contact with. And this study was released last week. I'm, I'm curious, what has been the public reaction to your research? So far, it's been pretty pretty well received. I think that there's a lot of communication now about what constitutes a public health crisis, what constitutes a high risk, what does that look like. This report was by no means meant to instill panic in anyone. I think people who live in the region have been living with this, unfortunately, for a really long time. But it's to really just elevate the fact that this is something that's been going on for long enough that is causing enough problems that we absolutely must be looking at it. And we have to look at it deeper and collaborate together on this across both sides of the border and with different government agencies and different um, organizations that are working on this issue coming together to address it. And still, though, this is a serious public health concern. Do you have any hope, though, that this issue can ultimately be fixed? I do. I feel really good about the fact that there are so many people that are advocating for this to stop. It's not just about the public health risk, but it's also just about protecting our environment, our economy, not having our beaches closed. We're one of the most beautiful destination places in the country. And to have our beaches closed because of contamination is just really sad. 
So I do have hope that our decision makers, our leaders, our um, local organizations and advocates in government will come together to help address this issue. And the more we talk about it, I think the more we realize that we all have the same common goal, which is to slow down or stop that pollution and to protect people's health and our environment. What role does environmental justice play in all this? That's an important question. We often ask, you know, would this type of pollution or contamination be met with a similar disregard or a lack of awareness about it if it were in a place like, say, La Jolla Shores? Would that be tolerated? We don't really think that it would receive, um, we think it would probably receive a little bit more attention than it is. And so our communities of San Isidro and Imperial Beach you know, they don't have as many resources as other communities. And so this becomes an environmental justice issue for these communities as well. What do you see as the biggest challenge to getting the resources to fix this problem? Because awareness is one thing. Um, getting the resources is another. Funding. Funding is the biggest issue. It takes a lot of money to repair this infrastructure and to build up, you know, the surveillance systems that we need to make sure that people aren't getting sick and that this contamination doesn't continue. I really think it's going to be the decision makers working in D.C. and, and California, Sacramento and here locally that are going to have to advocate for more funding to repair this aging infrastructure. Hmm. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that I didn't ask? I think it's important to note that this report did not look at health data. We aren't looking at whether there's increased cases of illness or not. This really was just looking at the pollution, the contaminations, and the potential pathways for people to be exposed. And it's supposed to really elevate this idea that this vast amount of contamination that's coming across um, and into our oceans and happening on such frequency, it is absolutely urgent that we take a look at what those risks might be and work together to stop it. So just kind of circling back and knowing that this wasn't a report about health data, uh, but this was a report about pollution. We are exposure scientists, and I think that's what makes this the report really unique, is that we're really just looking at what does risk look like. And what we found was that there is some risk and that we need to be paying attention. What's next for your research? You know, that's a great question. Next, we are looking at um, taking a deeper dive at these aerosolized particles. We have some researchers here at San Diego State University, and I also know there's researchers at other universities locally that are looking at what is in the air that people might be breathing, how far does it travel, is it affecting people? These are all questions that's next for us that we're taking a look at, and obviously to continue our surveillance of the waters and the soil just to make sure that we're keeping track of what is contaminating our environment and how do we protect ourselves from that. I've been speaking with Paula Stigler-Granados, professor at San Diego State's School of Public Health. Uh, professor Stigler-Granados, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, San Diego County puts a microscope to disparities across the region. Seeing those inequities, you know, and knowing that those policies and systems are in place, you know, it's our social responsibility to figure out how do we address those. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. As you just heard in the previous segment, Professor Stigler Granados underscored the inequities in federal government response to cross-border pollution. But federal government aside, local officials are looking at inequity across the region. Earlier this month, the San Diego Office of Equity and Racial Justice released the county's first equity indicators report, which identifies how racism and oppression are impacting San Diegans. The findings in the report are from a single point in time in 2021, and it underscores stark disparities in housing, food access, jobs, and much more. Here to talk about these findings and how this report may help create equity is Andrew Strong. He is the director of the Office of Equity and Racial Justice. Andrew, welcome back to Midday. Hey, thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So this report is part of an ongoing commitment that the county has. Tell me about that commitment. Yeah, um, and just like last time when we spoke, you know, the county really committed itself to leaning into what it means to have a lens of equity and racial justice across all the work that we do. And it started with that commitment of, de of declaring racism a public health crisis and creating the office that I, I run right now, um, but also just really leaning into the data analysis to show the need um, for the significant change that needs to happen in our communities. So, you know, as you kind of said, you know, this report examines inequities and like oftentimes mm -hmm. when I hear people talk about that, they seem to have different definitions of the term. So how do you define inequity and, and what lens is this report looking through? So how I define, well, first I'd like to start defining equity as a whole, right? Equity um, to me really is looking at doing your level of analysis to see where people are situated in systems, right? And then thinking about who those people are that are within those systems, but also thinking about what they need to be successful in life and to thrive, um, in, some, in some cases, just to survive. So really taking a, a hard look at that through that lens. But it also means that you have to look at people. You have to look, you can't be colorblind, right? You can't be blind to folks' disabilities. You can't be blind to folks' uh, gender uh, status. You can't be blind to any of those things because you have to have that deep understanding of who they are so you can figure out what those folks need. And that's essentially what equity is. And what inequity is, is basically flipping that on his head and saying, okay, you know, we, we know that black and brown folks suffer from some of the worst ills of our society. When you're talking about uh, jobs, employment, when you're talking about finances, when you're talking about healthcare or, or living in food deserts. So what does that mean? That means that there's systems and structures and policies that have been put in place in some cases to intentionally do that. So seeing those inequities, you know, and knowing that those policies and systems are in place, you know, it's our social responsibility to figure out how do we address those. Right. So the report looks across 10 areas. What are those areas and why were they chosen? So it looks it looks across a, a ton of different areas. So everything from economic opportunity, education, healthcare, um, health access, the crime and legal system. And and the interesting part about how we chose those, and we were very intentional about it, because um, you notice it's not everything, right? That we started off with actually 120 indicators. And the way we started off with those indicators is because we had several community meetings over time because we wanted to be very intentional about co-creating this report with the community, we wanted to find out what people wanted to see, what, what did they want us to address 
where do they see themselves in the system? And we had several community meetings with with their just random community folks in the community who were experiencing these ills of society to help us unpack to see what is what is what are some of those areas that we need to focus on. So we started off with 120 indicators. We narrowed them down through a process to, of of quality uh, data analysis to see what data was out there, what data existed. Um, there's some indicators that folks wanted us to measure that we didn't quite frankly have indi indicators for, right? So we considered creating community surveys and things of that nature to come up with new indicators. But we finally settled on these 34 indicators across these 10 themes. So which areas saw the largest equity gaps? We saw some of the largest equity gaps in economic opportunity, economic opportunity and education. I think um, those were the ones that really stood out when you're talking about specifically our black and brown communities. And I think it's significant that it's Black History Month and re released this report and knowing that, you know, this is a this is a time to reflect on our rich contributions of black folks in this in this country, in this world. But it's also a time for us to recognize the continued battle against all systemic inequities and all forms of racism. But you're thinking about the report data specifically. I mean, one stat that really jumped off the page was was the one around people of color and disabled folks and immigrants being more likely to be 200 percent below the federal poverty line. I mean, 200 percent, that is significant, especially if you're talking about San Diego County and, and just the cost of living, um, the cost of housing being 200% below the federal poverty line. And that just tells us how much work we have to do as a society to really lean into that. And our social responsibility as a county government, knowing we have an $8 billion budget and that, that money has to go somewhere. Let's start putting that money into communities and to the folks who really need it. You mentioned education, and I wanna unpack that a little bit. I mean, where do the disparities exist? Is it in educational attainment? Is it in resources uh, available? What areas are, are deeply impacted there? Well, specifically education, you know, we're talking about educational attainment, but we're also talking about opportunities within, within the system to not be excluded from the system and be put in the school to prison pipelines. We're talking about suspension rates, um, disparities among among our youth. I mean, and this is not a secret. We know that black or black and brown youth have the highest suspension rates in school. So, you know, if, if our kids are not in school, what are they out there doing? Right. They're out there getting in trouble. And if we don't have after school programs, there's a disparity in after school programs specifically within our underserved communities. And so we're talking about from educational attainment, but all the way down to suspensions, um, which is really important to, to have opportunities for our youth to stay in school but also to have opportunities to, to have after-school and before-school programming for our youth. And of course, you mentioned uh, disabled residents uh, and or immigrants, 200% more likely to fall under poverty level than mm -hmm. any uh, other county residents. What does that look like? How are people surviving? Well, I think I think what it looks like is our, is our homeless population. I think it looks like the disparities in, in what you see in that system. I think it looks like um, you know, when you're thinking about what happened in the floods and you're thinking about the most tragic impacts of the recent floods happened to our most underserved communities. And I know those folks in that population in that area specifically, some of those folks are living below the poverty line. Um, and and a, a majority of folks in our underserved communities are black and brown folks. And and that's where you see it show up. And then the other piece of that is our, our report also talks about the lack of, of grocery stores in certain communities. Right. And the need to have healthy foods. and that is a direct impact of folks living in those communities, not having the investments from government, not having an investment from, from the taxes that they're paying 
into those communities and not having the grocery stores and not having what they need to, to just survive in some of our most underserved communities. So, so there's more intention behind that disparity. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're talking about food access, then I, I want to dig into that more. The race and ethnicity disparities were so stark. Black people were three times as likely to be enrolled in SNAP than white people in the county. What does this say about inequity in our local food systems? You know, and I guess it also goes back to economic development and folks having the opportunity and having jobs and being able to pay for some of the things, the healthier foods, right? And and live in the areas where they can actually get those food, the food and and, and what they need to survive. Um, I, I think it says speaks directly to that, the economic gap. But it also talks about the the level of assistance that folks need. And I think, you know, recently there was a um, minimum income income pilot that that one of our, I think it was Jewish Family Services um, led. And when you're thinking about what folks need and how much money they need to survive in this region. And knowing the numbers that that we're talking about as far as the SNAP program, Black or African-American people are more than three times as likely to be enrolled in SNAP. What does that tell you? That tells you that there's a significant gap there, right? Those folks have a need. So, so what does that mean for us not to just have those folks stay in the program, but to provide services and assistance for jobs, provide services and assistance to, to help them start to build some type of generational wealth for themselves, not to just get out of that, the need to have the system, but to start really building generational wealth. And, and that is a, a totally different paradigm shift than I think we've had in, in not just county government, but as a, as, as a society. Yeah. And food access, you know, it seems to also tie directly into health outcomes. So uh, the report looked at that. What did you find there? Yeah. And the health outcomes, I think, is something that's really significant. And that's, you know, the good thing about the health outcomes is that we have a pretty robust, um, you know, led by Dr. Wilma Wooten, public health agency and health and human services agency that really has a laser focus on on these health, these types of health outcomes and thinking about, you know, folks life course framework, I think. But it's, but there's also disparities within that, right? So you, you know, just because you know, those numbers are increasing, there's still those disparities, like low birth weight, for example, is twice as common among births that Black or African American mothers compared to white mothers. Twice as common to have low birth weight. And what does that mean? What does that impact on our youth? And that you're talking about development, developmental disabilities that that show up just because folks say they have that low birth weight, they don't have the healthy food, right? They don't have access to those the, the healthcare that they need to thrive. Um, when you're talking about health insurance coverage, that's and that's another disparity is is health insurance access. You know, if you don't have access to to go in and, and take care of yourself, to have those those checkups. You know, Black and Af- African-Americans were twice more likely compared to white residents not to have health insurance coverage. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that, right? And what can we do as a society and as a government, right, to provide that access and just to, to show people how to sign up for that and what's out there for them? And part of that, though, probably leads into jobs, right? So since healthcare is tied to employment in a lot of cases, I mean, what did you find in terms of inequities that exist in jobs? Yeah, and that's another one that's pretty that's that's pretty significant that I think, again, I keep going back to saying this and highlighting the fact that we have a social responsibility, um, but the inequities exist, exist when you're thinking about specifically business ownership, right? I mean, the, the, the Black businesses that are in San Diego County 
You know, they they have the least number of businesses. And on top of it, they have if we have our own businesses, then we also are less likely to to have contracts and government contracts. And what does that mean? I mean, that means basically, you know, you've had these longstanding organizations who continue to get business and continue to get contracts, and they also continue to hire their own people. Right. So what does that mean for us as an organization, not just a county? But to start really uh, investing into the to those black and brown businesses in ways we haven't done before, right? And also, what does it look like for us to to help organizations learn? You know, how do they have culture change within their organizations to make make your organization a safe place for black and brown folks? Yeah, and when you're talking about culture change, that leads to attitudes, right? And you know, attitudes mm-hmm. can change mm-hmm. policies, systems. How do attitudes need to change? to solve these issues? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good question. And, and you know, I do just want to highlight too the fact that one of the numbers that we saw that that really was disparaging was, you know, Black, African-American and disabled people have the lowest employment rates in our workforce. And it's like, well, why why is that? And and I think a lot of the times when, you know, you bring folks in your organizations, you're trying to help, you're trying to have an internship for, you know, under folks in underserved communities who come, who, who they don't walk like you, they don't talk like you, they don't listen to the same music, right? Um, they come into a workspace and what do we hear sometimes? Well, oh, they, they just weren't a good fit, right? Or, 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 you know, they just, they didn't fit into what the culture of this organization means. And sometimes it could be at that basic foundation level. And, and a lot of times it's not about, changing the individual. It's about changing that culture in, in your organization. So so I encourage folks. I think that when you, when you ask me, what do I mean? What do, what do we need as far as the thinking? I think there needs to be an entire paradigm shift around when we talk about what culture is. Maybe we even stop calling it an organization's culture, right? Maybe this is just an environment that we want to be a diverse space, right? So we can bring in different ideas, different ways of thinking, different different folks from different places, especially when you're talking about government and providing services, right? Our services, the way we provide them, we have to have not just a reflection of those communities, but the experience and the lived experience of those folks in those communities to be able to not just provide the services, but to make the decisions about the services and, and what we're trying to impact. So I'm talking about leadership change, right? So we're talking about not just our frontline employers, our our managers, our supervisors, our directors, you know, they should have lived experience. And what does that look like to to create an interview process, right? To be able to to value that in a different way. And I think that that's the type of thinking that needs to change across across our region. Hmm. And I want to dig into solutions more, but before we do, the big elephant here in the room is home ownership, right? And it is one path towards financial well-being. Yet it's it's difficult for so many people to own a home, not to mention San Diego still has a major affordable housing shortage. How does this affect Black households? Yeah, uh, I think you're talking about when we talked about in the report, 38% of households were spending so much money towards housing. Black and African-American households were more likely to spend more than half of their income toward housing compared to other households. I mean, so you think about what the median income or the median, you know, house costs right now, I think is up as in $900,000. So if you're spending half of that, over half of that, and you have to start making decisions and choices about, you know, we just talked about food, you know, we talked about just enjoying life, right? We talked about healthcare, you know, so all that, all those things cost. And if you're spending so much money in your housing needs, um, that that could have a significant impact on your livelihood and your health 
at the, at the basic foundational needs. Yeah, it's like it would put one in survival mode rather than in a place to thrive. Absolutely, and that's what you see. Yeah. Is there any particular finding from the report that really surprised you? You know, I think the one that surprised me is the one I already said about the poverty level. I got to keep going back to that. And it's, you know, we just set up an office of economic development in the county and it's, it's housed in one of our departments. And personally, I think one of our goals needs to be to eradicate poverty, right? That we need to figure out how to do, how do we do that? Um, what does that look like? And, and people of color and disabled people and immigrants, I think we can all get behind that, right? As people and say, okay, this is, these are our most impacted populations when you're talking about being 200% below the federal poverty line, right? So what can we do, I mean, at least within our organization to start investing in those folks and getting them out of the, the, out of poverty? And that will also help our, our, our homeless population, right? Because that's essentially what we're trying to do is, is eradicate, eradicate poverty, but also you know, try to eradicate homelessness. You know, that should be, these should be our goals. We should be thinking differently about, you know, not just trying to put band-aids on solutions. And I'm not saying that's all, all we're doing, but we should be thinking about how do we eradicate some of these things? You know, we need to be very ambitious. Very ambitious. Uh, do you think that we're talking about these issues in the right way? No, I don't. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we're excited about this report. And a lot of times you create reports and they sit on the shelf, right? And, you know, and or people have it and there's data out there for folks to use and you can run a story and tie it to something. Well, what we hope from this report is that we have and what we will make a very intentional goal to address is, is bringing this report, not just to highlight the data, but to talk about what are the programs that we already have that exist that are that are trying to move the needle on some of these indicators. But what are some of the things that don't exist? And then how do we be very ambitious to co-create some of these things with the people who are directly impacted and or have the lived experience in, in these negative outcomes? Yeah, this report, you know, is essentially a snapshot of inequity in the county. Will it continue to be updated? Yeah, it absolutely will. We're going to um, update it as the data comes in. We can't say, you know, it's going to be updated annually. There will be some data that's going to be updated annually because that's when the data comes out. But as the data comes out, we'll definitely be updating over time. And the other thing is that, you know, this it doesn't cover everything in this report, right? And and one of the things we want to make always take a look at is what do we need to add? What do we need to take off the report? You know, because maybe those indicators are doing so well, but what do we want to highlight? And, you know, one of the things that really jumps out to me uh, after the recent floods is infrastructure. And I really want us as a, as a county government, and specifically with, with this indicator report, I think on next year's version to really consider what does that infrastructure equity look like, right? And who's getting their, their storm channels cleaned out? Whose roads are being paved and whose aren't, right? So let's, let's take a look at that. But absolutely, the data will definitely be updated annually throughout the year. Do you hope that it will hold government agencies accountable to being more equitable? I mean, you know, when you're talking about storm drains and roads being paved, I mean, these these are things that were promised years ago, but obviously those promises were not fulfilled. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more we talk about stuff like this, the more we can show the data or we show the maps and we, we talk about it. It's like you said, are we talking about these things in the right way? No, we're not. Well, no, we're not. And I think in some communities, we are, right? But I think in, when, when you're talking about the communities who have the power, who have the influence, right, they aren't, right? And I think that's a problem. And I think 
hopefully the goal is to hold us accountable as government agencies, right? And, and to be transparent, right? And if we are doing things, let's talk about what we're doing. But I absolutely hope that this is a, another report, another tool to help us be accountable. I've been speaking with Andrew Strong, director of the San Diego Office of Equity and Racial Justice. Andrew, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Jade. I really appreciate the time. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.